0: Turning to Hebrews chapter 2, I'm looking back at what Matt just read in John chapter 5 by way of introducing what I'm doing in these four messages. You say four, yes. Last week, uh, today, then Friday, and then Easter Sunday. And what I'm doing is I'm, I'm highlighting what I'm calling the eternal plan of God. Now, it's called by other things, by theologians. It's called the covenant of redemption. Um, you know, you won't find that exact phrase in the Bible. You'll, you do find things like God's eternal decree, God's foreknowledge. And I've been studying this for some time now and, and put pieces of the puzzle together. And I'm sharing some of that with you in these four messages. And um, the first time around, which was last week, the emphasis was on the eternal plan of God, that is, from the perspective of eternity. And I basically asked the general question, is there really an eternal plan of God? I mean, where, where do I see that? What chapter and verse is that? And it's more of a collective understanding about that. And so we looked at passages like uh, Ephesians 1, for instance. We, we looked at passages that demonstrate that God has done something in eternity past that God has done something before the foundation of the world that God has done something in ages past and that he is carrying it out now and again by way of introduction so we demonstrated the plan from the perspective of eternity then now I'm looking at it in perspective of humanity and in particular the humanity of Christ. And so that took me to John's gospel. It's all through John's gospel. So I had to pick out just a small portion of it. We couldn't read all the chapters. But in this, I'm just going to try and bring you along with me so that I'm not losing anyone, even if you didn't hear last week. Again, this is some of what Matt just read. So Jesus said to them in verse 19 of chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. Now, to me, that implies a plan. That implies the Father has a plan to do something, and that the Son is following through on that plan. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And and many other parts of this. Uh, I jump down to verse 23. Uh, He does this, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. You see that? God sent the Son. Um, Verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice. And he brings that same kind of topic back up in 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. See, there's a time still coming. Now, to me, these kinds of verses imply that there's a plan that's out. Some things that have been done. There are some things that we're looking into Scripture right now that were being done in the life of christ and there are still some things that will be done all according to god's plan is the last verse that he read i can do nothing on my own as i hear i judge and my judgment is just because i seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me i see tensionality i see a plan Jesus is doing what he was assigned, what he agreed with, with the Father and the Spirit in eternity past, and now we come to this topic, I'm examining it today, in humanity, or from the perspective of humanity. And, yes, there's a a corresponding question there. Why did Jesus need to become a man? That's my quandary. To a certain extent, I'm dragging you into my study into my world, into my mind, because I ask questions like that. I I keep continuing to search out God and and to know him and to find out what what he's doing in the world. And one of my questions is, why did Jesus need to become a man? I could have stayed in John. I mean, think about what have you... you For God so, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's why Jesus came. And listen, I would never, ever want to detract from that whatsoever. That that may be the tip of the spear. That may be the heart of the bullseye. Correct. But sometimes I'm like a three-year-old. You know what a, three, a three-year-old a three says? <laughs> three-year-old says, why? I mean, you can give a good answer, right? You can give the exact right answer, and all you get back from the three-year-old is, why that? And so, well, you follow it up with, okay, well, that's understandable, and you follow it up with another answer, and what do you get? You, you, get, you get why. And so I'm still kind of uh, left with, okay, I got that, and I don't want to minimize it, oh, don't criticize me for minimizing, but I want to know, well, but still, why did he have to be a man to make that happen? Now, here's my, no, here's my prayer first. I'm going to pray. Because I need that. And I depend. So let's pray together. The Lord I am so glad that when you called me to yourself, when I first came to know you, that I was enthralled with you, with you, Jesus, with sitting at your feet, Jesus, and learning from you and watching you speak to people and and teach your disciples and wanted then to be that. And to a certain extent, I say, I say, renew unto me the joy of my salvation. In other words, I want to I continue to have that hunger to know you. And in this prayer, express my complete dependence upon you in communicating your word this morning to to the betterment of your hearers, your disciples. So speak, Lord, I pray, that we may be encouraged and uh, to just exalt you. God, do it, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to join you over in Hebrews chapter 2, and as I'm doing that, I, uh, as I often do, I, I have an open opening illustration in the answering of my question. Why did Jesus need to become a man? Why did God become a man? And part that we're going to see here in Hebrews is that, um, well, that he became like us to associate with us. Um, These days we're hearing a lot about rich people flying into outer space, Elon Musk, and you can sign up for a mere $55 million for a place in the capsule and that sort of thing. And I understand now he's the richest man. He's surpassed Jeff Bezos. I mean, he... He's worth, like, about $219 million, and Jeff Bezos is only worth, like, $171 million. And forget Bill Gates, right? Chump change at $158 billion. Um, I, I'm, I'm probably going to guess, in this room, it's a wild guess, but I'm going to guess that nobody in this room can really relate to those kind of figures. <laughs> at least I can. I'm a little short of that. It's just... It's so mind-boggling that, you you know, on long trips in the car, you, you kind of, what would I do if I had all that money kind of conversation, you know. It's just so incredible out there. Not really my point as to how much money that they have, but I wonder, I wonder with these people, it's so way up there, un- unbelievable in, in many respects, how they relate to the person in the mail room. Do you know that analogy? You know, long ago, and we talk about the person that's on floor number twenty-six. You know, they're up there in the penthouse and big office and that sort of thing. How do they relate to the person way down in the basement in in the mail room? Or I, I might say the same thing about some you know wealthy uh, person, some wealthy landowner, how um, tens of thousands of acres in Texas. How do they relate to somebody in? One of those poor hispanic poverty towns on the border or have you ever been to a native american uh, reservation in montana or south dakota really really tough places how, how does how does a wealthy person relate to that, or, or just any ghetto in a major city in north america you know can you imagine the the big wealthy person driving up in their limo downtown one of these arenas and deciding to step out on the curb and, and say to no a person, let me tell you how I really care about your plight. Let, let me describe to you how compassionate I am toward you people who live below the poverty line. And I don't know, maybe it's the evilness of my mind, but I'm kind of like being one of those people, migrant workers, and I'm sitting there going, yeah, Sure, you really, I mean, first time I've ever seen you, and you really care about me and my situation. What would it take for a person of that great stature, that wealth, those things that the world calls so important, what, what would it take for that kind of a person to actually express, to demonstrate their care, their compassion for the plight of those people at the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum from them? What would it take for them to really show that they do care? And I'm guessing it would take quite a bit. You know, we talk about politicians in the same framework. Oh, they're in Washington and they don't really know what's going on in Main Street, USA. Why? Because they don't live there and they don't walk in our moccasins. They don't... And I hope that you see, I don't need to continue, this connection. What would it take for the God of heaven, the supreme, wonderful, compassionate, long-suffering God of heaven to communicate that he really cares about us? And when you consider this kind of a question, you say, why did God have to become a man? One of those reasons is that God expresses his compassion, his care for us by becoming a man. So I want to look at a few verses in Hebrews chapter 2 that flesh that out in a little bit more detail with you. Why did Jesus become a man? And I want to begin by chapter 2, which I need to get to. Chapter 2, and I'll pick it up now in, a, in about uh, verse, the latter part of verse 8 here. Now, before I do that, let me just set the context. I could go all the way back to chapter 1, and the writer of Hebrews is going to talk about why this is written, He's going to talk about the fact that man, that man in some respects is a little lower than the angels, but I believe that he's going to go on to say more important than the angels. Could I press my point one more time with you by digressing back to chapter 1, verse 1? Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of his glory, uh, the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, and upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs now all i want to say at this point is there's a plan in there it used to be that we heard about god through the prophets back there now we're hearing it through the son and even the Son has more to do in future. Now, I know it doesn't say those exact things, but it reveals those exact things. So that when we get over to chapter 2, and he's talked about angels, but he says that he has made him a little lower than the angels, that he's taken them out of heaven and in the heavenly realm, and he's made him a man. And that man is more important because this is the salvation plan of God, he says in chapter 2, verse 1, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And so I would suggest to you that Jesus becoming a man is something that we need to listen to. And he goes on quoting Psalm 8, but then down the latter part of verse 8, he says, now... Now, today's topic is seeing the eternal plan of God from humanity. And right here, that describes it. How so? He says, for a little while, he's not among the angels. Angels are not human beings. Angels are not flesh and blood. Now he's made them a little lower than them and brought him for a little while to be a man. That is the Lord Jesus but I'm still stuck. Why? And and it's a very simple, maybe not even profound, although it may be more profound than I want to admit. Why did Jesus need to become a man? Because he needed to die. You got to be alive first. In order to die, why did Jesus, why did God need to become a man? First, from this text, it says to taste death. And that's a simple metaphor in in this particular case of saying to taste death for everyone. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because there's my answer see I'm, i'm looking for those words the because word the so that word the the purpose words that lead me to the answer of my question because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of god he might taste it would you ever write that would you ever write that sentence would you ever write a sentence by the grace of God, I might taste death. We, 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 I, I just don't think so. I just don't think so. By the grace of God, that we might taste death. But the first reason that God became a man is because God doesn't die. Despite what Niebuhr and others of God is dead movement back in the, mid part of the 20th century god is not dead and only man can die and god became a man in order that he might die that he might taste death for us by the grace of god but then look again verse 10 now verse 10 number two not only did he have to die But the reason that God became a man was to bring many people to glory. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. To bring many sons, many daughters, many people to glory. Now, that may not hit you as powerful as i want it to hit you so i once again call the thesis the theme of this series to mind and i and i hope by doing so it shines a different maybe a new maybe a more powerful light on on the fact that he brings that he leads many to glory because i ask you this question when did he decide to do that He decided that in eternity past, in that covenant of redemption, in that pact that he made, in the eternal plan, God also knew something. God also knew something, not just about himself, not just about the Son, not just about the Spirit, he also knew eternally something about you and me. And that something about you and me is, we can't do it. God, even in his eternal plan, pardon me for just a minute, would you? It's almost sacrilegious to enter into the mind of God and suggest that in somehow this incredibly fallible being can suggest a conversation with him. But once again, I'm back there, and I'm looking at that, I'm looking at three of them huddled up together a little bit, and God the Father says to God the Son, you know, they're not going to be able to free themselves they're not going to be able to get out of the fix that they're in they're not going to be able to make themselves alive he did that then he knew that we can't do it if you need a more up-to-date only a few thousand years old illustration That would be like Moses. I mean, if you think about the plight of the slaves in Egypt, and and mashing out the straw, and everything day in, day out, day in, and and then because of some interference, oh, we're gonna make it harder on, I mean, they had to be at the place of not only physical exhaustion, but just emotional, and life has no purpose, and we're just stuck. And the Bible says that God uses Moses to do what? Same word, lead them out. We need to be led out. We, we need to be brought to the glory of God. And one of the reasons that God became a man, that Jesus became flesh and blood, was to bring us out, to lead us out. Though Satan should buffet, and trials come our way. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. You see that third line? That's what, I was sitting in my study and it just, it just that he saw my what? He saw, he regarded my helpless estate. Bless God. It didn't come as a surprise. Buzz? I know you're doing pretty well right now, and I, I, I have hope for you. You know, you keep going like this, and you're, you're going to be okay. I know you tripped right there, but, uh, but pick yourself back up and keep moving, and, and one, one day you're, you're going to get there. That is not what God said. God said, I regard his helpless estate. And he has shed his own blood for my soul. But number three, speaking of Satan, though Satan should buffet, number three, take a look a little bit further down in the passage in verse 14. And I have five of these, by the way, not three. (laughs) So hang in there. But number three, why did God become a man well, speaking of the devil there in that, in that song, those Satan should buffet, I look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of some same things, <clears throat> that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So, another reason that Jesus became man. Was to destroy the devil. Uh, Katargeto is the word here. Katargeto in, in destroying it, it means to render powerless, uh, to to uh, deprive him of his power. That's the word that's translated here in to destroy him. And the Lord Jesus, if you remember his life, I mean, what's the first thing that he did after baptism? Huh? first thing he did was he was led away into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil three times over boom 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 but this is what the word of god says and he comes against him right there in a parable he simply says this that that a thief cannot come in and break into the house unless he does what first he first binds the strong man that's what's happening here he's destroying the power of the devil right here in this particular passage and yet we find ourselves still under that enslavement to a certain extent. I mean, he, d- he did say that he who's coming, who's being made for a little while, a lower than a man, all things are subjected to him, but yet we don't see all things in subjection to him now, right now. It hasn't been completed. It's not finished just yet. Uh, my thought about that is, uh, is somewhat Strange, But could you go with me for a moment? Um, Maybe you've seen these kinds of videos, maybe on your computer, that sort of thing. It's it's the video of an athletic event, specifically a video of a long-distance race. Uh, And and, and great courage, it says in the caption like this. Well, I'm I'm interested in great courage and athletic events, so I'm going to watch this. And it's a long-distance race. It's not a sprint. In a sprint, you know, all the runners have their own lanes kind of deal, and boom, it's over real quick. In a long-distance race, they all line up in one line. Maybe it could be 20 runners all on one line, just kind of all bunched up, maybe a 10,000-meter race or something really long. And boom, the gun goes off, and off they go around this track the first time, maybe maybe, maybe the second time. As they're coming around the, the track, maybe for the second time and they're all kind of still bunched up and they oh no, all of a sudden somebody trips and falls down. Somebody tripped them and, and they fell down. Oh, boom, now they're, they're down. The whole pack just keeps running on by them. They're headed up, up to the next turn. And this person just kind of, woman's struggling to get back up to her feet and starts, you know, moving a little bit and starts in full stride running. But she is so far behind the pack. Give it up right and, and then you know one lap and she's a little closer to the pack And the next lap like all of a sudden she's starting to pass the people who are in the back of the pack you know and then the next lap around she's in the middle of the pack passing and by the time we're, we're coming around to the, to the last lap. There's only three people in front of her. She passes the first one, and then the the second one down the the back. I can't believe this has happened. This person who was so far behind is catching, and all the time the person in the lead, who's out there a little bit further than even the other two, begins to look back like this, look back like this, look back, and she's coming and she's coming, they turn the round thing, they're coming down the home stretch, and sure enough, boom, 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 and she wins. Unbelievable! This person who was knocked down gets up. Now here it is. I think Satan's the one who was leading the race all the way around. Because that's what it looks like often in this world, doesn't it? Doesn't it look like Satan's winning this race all the way around? But you know what? I believe that the scriptures are talking about a time of turning that last, looking, 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 and sure enough, I guarantee it, according to the word of God, he will lose. He will lose. That's what's happening in this text. Why did Jesus need to become a man? I think in that wilderness encounter. I think in that parable, he's making an announcement to him. Maybe it's not complete here in his earthly life, but he made an announcement. Your doom is sure. And he knows it. Number four. Not only is he defeating him, but as I continue looking... In verse 15, the verse right after, it says, "...and deliver all those who through fear of death were subjected to a lifelong slavery." Do you see that? Who are subjected. Now, what does that mean? Jesus became a man in order that also to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery." Who is he talking about? Who lives in lifelong slavery of death? Well, certainly the person who doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus. But believe it or not, also you and me. In my opinion, a Christian can actually still emotionally, practically live a lifelong fear of death. But what Jesus did in coming to be a man, and we've already said, why that? Because he had to die. And we know the end of the story, that he lives again, true? That he came to say to those people, to say to you and to me, come on, Christian, live like there's victory. To free, that's what the text says. No, uh, to deliver all those through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. To fear them, to free them, that is. In other words, not only did he come to defeat the devil, which he did, but he came also to disarm him. What's the club in the devil's hand? What is the club in the devil's hand? The club in the devil's hand is death. And he came and he disarmed him. Jesus came to be a man to disarm Satan. Because, John three sixteen, those who believe have eternal life. And he no longer has the power over, uh, of, of death to thwart it over those who believe. But finally, number five, why did Jesus become a man? So that he would prove to be merciful and faithful, the satisfaction for the wrath of God. Look at verse 17. Therefore he had to be made, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We see a very similar thing, do we not, in chapter 4, verse 15. In chapter 4, verse 15, often cited here, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, unable to sympathize with our weakness. But one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, it says. Why did Jesus need to become a man? In order to sympathize with us. In order that, in this particular text, he might be merciful and faithful. Now listen, folks. Merciful and faithful is not just a tag you slap on a little baby. What do you mean? Well, merciful merciful and faithful is something that is demonstrated through life. How do I know somebody is full of mercy? How do I know somebody is faithful? They live that way. You can see it in front of them. Why did God need to become a man? To live among us, not just as a label, but as an example. Not just to lead us out, but to be an example in front of our eyes of someone who is merciful, someone who is faithful. How do you show that? You live that. You're a person of mercy. You're a person of faithfulness. In order to qualify as a person who satisfies, be careful here, I said it last hour and it scared a lot of people. In order to qualify as a person who satisfies the obligation, why did he become a man? I've already said to die. Why did he become a man? Now we're saying in order to live in front of us. Now here's what I said that's dangerous. Just because Jesus lived a perfect life does not qualify him to take away the sins of the world. Just because he's qualified at that point Just because, in silly human analogy, somebody's filled out the the requisite paperwork and done... No. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Not only was he qualified in life, he was qualified in death. Jesus had to die. And in order to have to die for the remission of sins he had to become a man and jesus proved himself to be merciful and faithful oh that it is well with my soul comes back again my sin oh the bliss of this glorious thought my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and i bear it no more praise the lord praise the lord Oh, my soul. Listen, what I'm highlighting here is my sin not in part. Now, the only way that Jesus' satisfaction, that's what this big word propitiation in this verse means. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. Did he satisfy most of the wrath of God? No, you would say he satisfied all of the wrath of God. How did he satisfy all the wrath of God? Becoming all. All that God expected you and me to be, but couldn't. Not most of it, not almost part of it, not even 99.9% of it. Jesus became all. Why? He was assigned to it and he agreed to it in the eternal plan of God to become a man and be. Oh, I do nothing but what I see Him doing. I do everything that He says to do. He became completely everything so that we could sing a song that says, Oh, my sin, not in part, but the whole, because He paid it the price in His humanity on the cross. I love that line. You know, I love that line. My sin, not in part, but the whole. We used to have an elder here who every time we sang that, just cry. Just cry and cry. Oh God, my sin, not in part, but the whole, because you came and paid the whole price. Pray with me, would you? Lord, Lord Jesus, thank you for not considering equality With God, something to be held on to forever and ever and ever, but being made a little lower for a little while than the angels, you became flesh and blood so that you might die, so that you could destroy the devil, so that you could disarm the devil. And death no longer reigns over our hearts because you are merciful, because you are faithful to the very end and now highly exalted at the right hand of the Father. We know you're coming again. We pray even so, come Lord Jesus and lead us out to complete victory. In Jesus I ask it, amen.